Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to March's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. Coming up, we've got a fascinating interview with Mark Saxon, CEO of Medallion Resources, who discusses the rare earth market and his company's technology, which could revolutionize supply. But before that, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Cormac Olera from Electrios Energy. Cormac, welcome. Hey, Matt. How have you been? Yeah, pretty good. good it's been an interesting month for uh, for the battery space, hasn't it? Yeah, crazy amount of announcements. There's been uh, capacity increases. There's been uh, the LG SKI saga. There's much, lots to talk about, let alone the prices of raw materials and EV sales. They got bumper again uh, at the start of the year, especially in China. Okay. So uh, why don't we kick off? What are you seeing sort of in the Chinese market? What are the, the big things? I mean, obviously, there have been some capacity increase announcements. And as you alluded to, the EV sales. So uh, tell us what we should be looking at. To begin the year, really, but the kickoff between uh, ternary, cathode materials and LFP, we can see, uh, you know, the, the growth again is, uh, you know, multiples for the LFP uh, installations in, in China. It's about like 40% or so of EV installations are LFP. So the, the growth in LFP is, is that's you know, a sign of things to come for the rest of the year, yeah. That's impressive. And I mean, we saw the, the, the first announcement of a potential European car utilizing LFP, which is the new Renault 5. It's going to be a couple of years before it comes out, but um, it'd be very interesting to see if more European models adopt the LFP chemistry because it really has come on leaps and bounds over the last couple of years. We're going to have to see the likes of uh, Volkswagen and even maybe some premium uh, car manufacturers introduce uh, LFP models, uh, maybe uh, for their uh, lower price cars or their uh, economic cars. That would really break the market right up in LFP. It's going to be a huge year for LFP, although the demand has caught suppliers quite a little off guard because uh, there's been a little shortage in the availability of the uh, precursor material and the cathode material here in China. That's interesting. And I, I noticed just, I mean, just talking about the EV sales, the um, quite an interesting month. Now, I might butcher the pronunciation here. The Wuling Hongguan Mini EV. Ooh, I don't know if yeah. I got that or not. That's the biggest selling EV in China. And it's trumped the Tesla Model 3. And that's the fifth month in succession. It's beaten the Tesla Model 3 to, to be the top selling car. And that's quite an interesting vehicle, isn't it? Because it's—I think it's sub six thousand dollar cost, very small battery, and, and a range of one hundred and seventy kilometers. So very much a city car. Quite attractive to the buyers up there. It's, it's the going the opposite way. The the EV market was going, uh, you know, only twelve months ago, where it was uh, large sedans with large battery packs. Now uh, this Wuling, which is, I think it's. What do you say? Double or triple the sales of uh, the Model Three in China has yeah. tiny battery pack. I think it's uh, thirteen kilowatt hours or something like that. Uh, the range is 100, 105 something kilometers. Actually, mm-hmm. I think it's kilometers. Don't quote me on that. But uh, what's interesting about this, though, the huge sales and, and you, you just had trouble pronouncing the name. GM are also involved in this project. So you know, people think GM are years behind uh, Tesla. Ten years, I've heard. Uh, even though. 
GM have been involved with the Chevy Bolt and, and Chevy uh, Volt in the early 2010s. So they've been in the EV game for a long time. But it's interesting that they are also involved in the world's best-selling electric vehicle. And I think very interesting with this vehicle doing so well in uh, in China that the Dacia Spring is due to launch in Europe in a couple of months' time. That's going to retail for around about €12,000, I think, in France is, is the first market. And again, it's a small car, small battery size, relatively small range. But it's going to be quite interesting to see how well that does in the European market, given this trend that we're starting to see in China. There's another mini EV rolled out in China uh, this month also, or in February, sorry, it's March already. Quite similar to the uh, Wuling uh, mini EV, same price tag, same battery range. So I think we're going to see a number of competing models uh, coming out for this size. As you said, the city runaround is perfect. And it really seems to uh, suit the Chinese uh, population who are, uh, you know, in congested cities. Got a few of those in Europe as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You know, they're not worried about getting the 500 kilometer uh, range when they're just going to going to the uh, supermarket or the restaurant, wherever they're going to. Just, uh, I think this car, and I think in a city I'm here in Hong Kong, it would, uh, you know, really open up the city. It's quite congested here also, and there's, you know, Teslas. There's the amount of Teslas in Hong Kong is ridiculous. They're actually quite large cars, uh, so it'd be nice to see a couple of Wuling Minis uh, coming in here and. Uh, opening up the roads a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> and there, there's absolutely nowhere to go in Hong Kong also, so it'd be perfect yeah. size car. Excellent. Okay, so uh, that's the, the EV side. Some interesting uh, mega factory and gigafactory announcements this month as well. Yeah. Well, there's uh, Goshen. They have announced the, the um, building a new battery factory in China and also a uh, chemical manufacturing Cathode material manufacturing plant, probably, I, I believe it's LFP. So they'll be making the batteries and making their own cathode materials. So this is something we've seen the uh, Korean battery makers uh, uh, getting into also. And Tesla announced it, which is moving up and down the supply uh, the chain. Um, it's a quite a big uh, plant, actually. I think it's 15 gigawatt hours Goshen are planning to open. Um, I'm not sure uh, the size of the LFP manufacturing plant is going to be, but... Uh, yeah. You know, they see the future in LFP and uh, Goshen, you know, Volkswagen are a shareholder of Goshen now. So I don't think it's going to be too long before we see Volkswagens in China using LFP batteries. Oh, fingers crossed and, and, and potentially into to Europe after that. And I see also S-Volt and, and Cattle also bringing out quite big factory announcements. Uh, yeah. The interesting thing about the Chinese battery factory announcements, they're all about 20 gigawatt hours, where the factory announcements in Europe are all, are all about 45 gigawatt hours. So it's kind of a puzzle as to why there's a 20 gigawatt hour difference in the battery announcements. As you mentioned, S-Volt announced, I think it's two 20 gigawatt hour factories. Envision are opening a battery factory in Mongolia. I don't know if you came across that. I didn't um, see that one, I must say. Yeah, Envision are opening a battery factory in Mongolia, also 10, 20 gigawatt hours. I'm not sure the exact reason they're opening up in Mongolia. Maybe abundance of renewable energy, pretty close to the Qinghai uh, salt plains. But the, obviously, some materials out there. You know, well, it's a it's a, a mineral rich country anyway. That's certainly interesting. I think possibly the difference in in size and scale is because obviously you've got quite a big battery manufacturing industry in China already, whereas in Europe you've only got probably three or four factories cell factories at the moment so you yeah. really need to build 
big scale because none has previously existed. And interestingly enough, to see that LG Chem are, are also sort of looking at expanding in the US and have allocated, I think, something like $4.5 billion that's come out in the last couple of days to, to expanding their production in the US, which is yeah. uh, pretty exciting as well. LG have made a number of announcements. They're opening, perhaps opening a second factory with, for the ultimate, and the ultimate with uh, GM. They're going to build a factory for the 486, uh, 4680 uh, with Teslas. The announcements are like four or five factories. Yeah, I mean, LG has has been big anyway. They've certainly been the most interesting from a you know strategic viewpoint in terms of expansion, going from practically zero to biggest producer in the world for much of last year, and clearly showing no signs of stopping. And I think what's really interesting about LG compared to potentially some of the Chinese producers is they really are global. I mean, they're in the US, they're in Europe, they're in Asia, they're in China. Um, They really are pushing out with a global strategy, whereas no one else is really doing that at the same scale. Not in productions, you know, like CATL have agreements with practically every car car manufacturer out there. They are tentatively opening, I think the factory is under construction, but the the Germany factory is their first foray outside um, China. But um, it'd be interesting to see the difficulties of Huawei opening uh, doing business in the US. Well, uh, Chinese battery manufacturers also have the same kind of difficulties. It's, uh, you know, when will we see a Chinese battery manufacturer in the US? Because the demand from the US is going to be huge. It's uh, the plans rolled out by Biden for the new Green Deal is going to demand a lot of lithium ion batteries and and we can get into it later. But the the, uh, verdict for SKI versus uh, LG Chem is might leave or has left a gap in the market that needs to be filled by a big battery player. Yeah, and let's talk about that later. But uh, just one additional comment on that. It's it's very interesting because we, we're used to seeing shortages of EV batteries in the market, but we're hearing increasingly now from stationary storage companies of a, a very significant shortage of, of stationary storage batteries in the market as well, particularly with regards to the, the residential storage. So these battery cell factories really do need need to start um, ramping up production. And uh, we, we are seeing yeah. through the system now shortages of, of cells effectively. Well, NEO have announced there's a shortage of cells and that's the reason they're claiming, the reason that they won't be producing 10,000 cars a month for the next two months or so. Um, GM came out and said that during their uh, one of the recent webinar, webinars with the share, shareholder meeting uh, that they encountered a shortage of cells. Musk has been complaining that there's a shortage of cells. So everyone, including you, have been screaming about for years is just uh, really raised its head uh, at the start of this year and actually even towards the end of last year. And this coincided with also the Chinese New Year also and uh, the stocking of, of, of materials and destocking materials. Is, it didn't really, uh, the supply and demand didn't really overlap quite well during that time. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see how it, how it's going to match over the next three months or so, because the really interesting thing is obviously if we've got a show, uh, can't speak. If we've got a cell shortage, then obviously we've got to to increase production. But you're increasing production into an environment where lithium prices have gone up by seventy percent, nickel prices are up, cobalt prices are up, yeah. graphite prices are up considerably, and you're sort of sitting there going, well, who's going to get it in the neck then? Given that material prices are rising indicating a shortage of, of supply in the market. And I just, uh, you know, hopefully it starts uh, concentrating some mines quite quickly. 
the theme of the battery industry is costs are coming down and there's a, and we're doing better than was ever anticipated. And we're going to be sub 100. Maybe I'm sure you're going to hear some uh, analysts say they've you know recorded sub 100 uh, kilowatt hour uh, battery cells here. But the way the winds are going, we might see an increase in battery prices compared to last year especially if this keeps up. And this is going to go against the, the theme uh, and what we're all working for towards in the battery industry, which is be competitive with ICE. And the only way to do that is get the prices down. And, and there's been a lot of work done in the industry, but because of what's been happening in the raw material side, you know, all the plans have been made for battery manufacturing and, and by the OEMs. But now the raw materials basically aren't there, aren't available. And you're going to have to make it attractive for people to develop these projects to make some money. And who's going to pay for that? The OEMs going to, are they willing to pay higher prices for batteries? They might see that this year. I think that's true. And I I mean, I guess talking about the raw material issues probably feeds nicely into the Xinjiang nickel technology news. Now, admittedly, this is March news, not February, but uh, I think it's worthwhile sort of uh, talking about it here. And obviously, the the thing that's really roiled the nickel market is this announcement by Singshan that it's going to produce nickel mat from laterite nickel in Indonesia, which is quite a dirty methodology. And then this nickel mat, it's going to sell to cathode companies in China and and elsewhere. And this caused the nickel price to go down about 15% on the week, with the, uh, the, the, the market getting pretty worried about that. What did you see? off the back of that in, in China, were people pretty believing of that as a, as a new technology or, or were they? Uh, well, they welcomed it, first of all. The Chinese have been in, uh, in Indonesia for the last two years sourcing nickel and um, you know, they're going to be building a, a cathode processing plants down there. GEM, for example, is building one. Huawei Cobalt are down there. Uh, so we're going to see the matte material being proce- processed down there by the Chinese, uh, because um, namely because of the nickel export ban, probably. But uh, you know, exports of nickel to China have been falling for years now, ever since the ban came in. So it all has to be done in Indonesia. You know, you can look at this from two sides. First of all, if you look at it from the point of view of the consumers, then it's overwhelmingly positive because if you can use low-grade nickel that's suitable for upgrading to pig iron and then produce it into nickel sulfate for batteries, then that's positive because you're accessing a source of nickel that you wouldn't otherwise be able to access that previously has been considered too low quality. So that's great from the consumer point of view. There is one caveat on that, which is that it's an extremely dirty process environmentally with a big problem with greenhouse gas emissions, particularly CO2 in the processing. And Indonesia's grid is very dirty. It's about 80% hydrocarbons. So that's going to be a real issue, I think, for Western world OEMs. On the other side of it, from the industry point of view, the big question is, well, can they actually do it in terms of the purity levels of the products? And I mean, just to give you an idea, the big big issue with this material, where the clue's kind of in the name because it's pig iron, and iron is a big negative impurity in batteries, uh, particularly in cathodes. And I mean, the sort of specs you see for nickel sulfide sulfate, sorry, are sort of like 20, 10 to 20 parts per million iron. And you do wonder whether they'll be able to get all of that iron out of this material. So I think the jury's still out on whether this is actually a viable material 
for nickel sulfate for batteries or whether you can just produce commodity nickel sulfate potentially for other applications. And we, yes. we won't get visibility on that for a while. Well, we won't know because uh, it'll, it'll be what comes out of the precursor uh, manufacturers, so, which we haven't heard, no, heard nothing from them about. But uh, it's when Qingshan deliver it, it's how pure those guys can make it. I think you mentioned it in one of your posts recently, but uh, you were just discussing the energy intensity of uh, making a nickel mat, 75% nickel or so. I think that's what they claim. What's the energy intensity to further purify that to high purity, battery grade nickel sulfate? That is, uh, how easy is that going to be for the, uh, the uh, precursor manufacturers based in uh, Indonesia? The other point that's very important is that it may be viable from a chemical point of view to upgrade it. But the question is whether it's viable from, a, from an economic point of view or whether you need higher nickel prices to justify doing that amount of work on it. And my gut feeling is you are still going to need higher nickel prices to justify doing that amount of work on it. So I think the, my feeling is that the, over, the, the, the nickel market has overreacted, that the, the price fall is too, is too significant. But uh, anyway, the truth will out over the next couple of years, I guess. Tingshan said they're going to make this a carbon neutral process, right? By 2023 or something, I think is the number, because they're, you know, they're planning shipping end of 2021, right? Uh, this nickel yeah. mat. I think they said it's going to be, I read somewhere, it's going to be, they're planning to be carbon sustainable anyway, a fully sustainable operation by 2023. Uh, you may have heard that they're installing uh, 2,000 megawatt, uh, 2,000 megawatts of uh, solar panels and uh, hydroelectric uh, uh, power plant also. Uh, so, you know, the, this shows you the, what exactly we are saying. It's very carbon and uh, very intensive, energy intensive, and uh, they're going to have to offset it um, with these uh, renewable uh, energy sources. To tell you the truth, I think it's great to see them doing that. Uh, I mean, that, that shows that they really get the issues and they're not just paying lip service to the issues. So I think, yeah. you know, it's great to see them doing that, whether their consumers required them to do that or whether they decided to do that themselves. It's still very positive to see that sort of, uh, that sort of movement going on. The thing I'm wondering is, does that mean nickel sulfide and nickel sulfide projects, are, are they going to be viable going forward? Yes, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think the thing about nickel sulfide projects is that um, you know, we obviously get two types, the high grade and the low grade ones. I think high grade will continue to be viable going forward yeah. because it's still effectively the cheapest way to extract nickel on, a, on an operating cost basis. The lower grade projects is the situation with all low grade projects everywhere that obviously you need a high enough material price to, to offset the significant upfront costs. But my feeling is that you would still, you would still have a supply and demand imbalance for nickel, perhaps just not as big as it was previously. And you still got cost push. I mean. Um, you know, as we said just now, we think that, that this process might be higher cost. If that's the case, then you're going to need higher prices to offset that higher cost. So I think nickel prices will rise from here. The question is, you know, how much will they rise? Will they go up by three or four times or will they go up by 50% or 100%? If they go up by 50% or 100%, it's still enough to justify investments in some of the lower grade sulfide projects around the world. For this project to dent the market at all yeah, it's, we're not going to see anything until 2023 really it's, uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon and uh you know it will only be then when we'll know if we were right or wrong about this so <laughs> we just have yeah. to uh 
didn't see. It's going to be, uh, you know, uh, some of the other uh, nickel mining operations in in, uh, in Indonesia have, over the years have been, you know, drawn a lot of criticism from the international community for, you know, uh, sustainability, really, the, the main, uh, uh, and but it was more or less ignored because uh, there's not much of a spotlight on the stainless steel industry or the steel industry as where in the electric vehicle industry, everybody's looking at, every kilogram of CO2 emitted uh, that's yeah. going into these cars. Well, I, I think the big thing is that in the stainless steel industry, I think sort of 60 to 70% of it is going into um, construction type applications. Uh, yeah. And obviously nobody's really, you know, looking at those for, for CO2 intensity. But in the auto industry, everybody is looking at, as you say, every kilogram of material for CO2 intensity. So it is really a very, very different um, market. And I think just following on from the comments on Indonesia, the key issues are one, obviously how dirty the projects are, but two, the fact that a lot of the new projects were were targeting tailings disposal at sea. Yeah. And the Indonesian government's actually turned around this month and said it's not granting permits to any new projects which are looking to to dispose of tailings at sea. And obviously for, for a nickel laterite project where you might have a less than 1% nickel grade, that's yeah. a lot of waste material. So, you know, a lot of these laterite projects that were expected to be on, so I'm talking about HPAL projects that were expected yeah. to be on this year or next year, they have to do a pretty significant engineering reworkup of the project to look at how they're going to dispose of their tailings now. So I think we yeah, are going to see a delay in these projects. I remember asking, I didn't know much about the mining industry, a couple of years ago asking it, a gentleman involved in the nickel mining industry in Indonesia about tailings and he shrugged his shoulder and goes, uh, deep sea, uh, deep sea disposal is fine. It was accepted by the industry. It's all changed now. It's all changed. Nobody cares what's happening at the bottom of the ocean, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's not doing anything. Okay. So that's uh, nickel. Let's go on and talk about the LG Chem and SK innovation spat, which was, quite a big deal this month. And um, the initial judgment, uh, well, the final judgment came and then there were some quite negative comments about SK Innovation in a follow-up, de- more detailed judgment published earlier this month. And that's sort of thrown some quite significant eruptions throughout the industry, hasn't it? Well, you know, uh, LG Camera are involved in like 10 other similar cases against various some manufacturers are component manufacturers. This is something they're taking a stand on is their intellectual uh, patents. Uh, so what we're all worried about is where the cell is going to come from in the U.S. Is it going to be, uh, you know, are we going to be uh, undersupplied? Because this market is, you know, this, we need the factories built, you know, this year, next year. Uh, so we don't have time to wait for 10 years for uh, SKI to which will be a big, uh, still be a big battery company in 10 years to finally get into the U.S. market. So something is going to have to uh, happen here to... Um, As I understand it, there are two alternatives. One, that Joe Biden could veto the ruling, or two, the two companies can, can reach a settlement. Now, given the, the detailed ITC judgment that came out last week, you would imagine it would be politically difficult for President Biden to, to overrule to veto the ruling, given the quite negative things that they had to say, just from a rule of law standpoint. So really, we're focusing on, on potentially a settlement 
And you've got to assume that that would be more attractive to the Korean government as well, because it must be yeah. quite embarrassing to have uh, this sort two of... Two members of the same family having a public argument. This, uh, this yeah. the People have felt like this about this case for a number of years. I think it was 2017 when it was first uh, the complaint was first made. Yeah. But whatever happens, we are looking at Ford and Volkswagen really needing to to either get a, a settlement or find a new battery supplier in the US. And, and that's going to really put their, potentially put their plans back considerably. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, other than LG, who are expanding at a rapid pace in the US, are planned to expand. And, and uh, it looks like most of their capacity is going to be tied up with um, GM in the near term, at least, and then uh, with Tesla. So there could be problems for uh, both Ford and, and Volkswagen sourcing a significant amount of cells in, in, in the U.S. As you said, there's another option, and that is a settlement uh, to sit down at the table. Um, you know, there's LG Chem has la- laid out a number of terms that they're willing to settle for. Yeah, SK uh, aren't too enamored by the terms. The most notable one is that they want to publicly announce that they did, in fact, infringe on their uh, in- intellectual property. Yeah, I mean, I could see that Knowingly. that they wouldn't yeah. particularly want to do that, but uh, sometimes you might just have to to take the hit. But uh, you know, we don't know when I'm involved with either of those two companies. So. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's a cultural thing too. I'm sure, as you as you mentioned, that Korea would like uh, you know them to sort it out, uh, and you know, they tried for a few years before it went you know to court. So it's in- interesting, but. Yes, it's LG Camera pursuing a number of companies uh, for in- infringing on their intellectual uh, property. It's not mm. just SK, but SK, uh, you know, did some, you know, you got to look at uh, Ford and Volkswagen too. They signed agreements with a company that uh, that w- was involved in, in this case, which theft of intellectual property or infringement of in- intellectual property. Uh, so the due diligence shown by those two companies is, questionable also um, and in that, fact that's what the ICC ruling the detailed ruling did pick up on not not so much with Volkswagen gotta be honest I haven't read the detailed ruling yeah. so uh, certainly with yeah. Ford it did say look you know why did you guys go ahead and sign this contract when you knew this this thing was was ongoing but I think probably one of the reasons they did go ahead and sign the contract was because there's a, a, a very limited number of global battery producers that could produce on the scale that they as global OEMs would need. Another reason they thought was uh, that if they signed these giant contracts, that there's no way that uh, LG would have went forward, or uh, that this case would have been thrown out because of what occurred, that these companies would not have any access to batteries and their uh, their EV plans would be stalled. And that's something as a nation, the US couldn't couldn't handle. And, uh, and, and that's what happened. But I believe that uh, SKI prompted for these uh, contracts to be signed so that there was a good chance that uh, they couldn't be uh, taken to court because the deal was just too big. Mm. Well, unfortunately, that didn't work out very well. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, let's let's close the door on that. Been quite an interesting uh, month for capital raisings. In January and February, we raised $3.2 billion in the space, which was more than was raised in the whole of 2020. So that's pretty good. Unfortunately, the share prices have moved back since then. A lot of uh, shareholders who bought into those raisings are underwater at current uh, current levels, but it's pretty positive to see a little bit more capital flowing into the space. I, I noticed that, yeah. There was uh, 
the predominantly with Albemarle and Gangfang, right? Most of the money went to. Yes, but there, there are actually. I mean, there there have been like uh, ten or twelve raisings. Well, thirteen or fourteen raisings in February, and a lot of smaller raisings in January. Yeah. So, but you're right. It is predominantly with those two players, and of course, there was the big lithium Americas raising in uh, in January as well. So, yeah. we are starting to see you know capital being allocated for expansion projects but um, I, I still worry that it's not coming into the sector fast enough to expand production I think those are the the high points for the month uh, uh, Cormac have you got anything else that you think we should talk about the Korean capacity uh, outlook's looking pretty good as well the big Korean cathode manufacturers EcoPro Pasco LNF are all uh, more or less doubling capacity plans to double capacity uh, namely in the ternary materials NCA NCMA and NCM so they're reacting to the uh, increase in EV car sales and, and the general uh, momentum of the market so it's nice to see these plans to increase capacity that will will make more cathode materials available to satisfy the market in the mid 2020s maybe even sooner 2023 I agree uh, nominally that it's nice to see investments going through in, in cathode materials. My only concern is the bulk of those investments are still in the Korean slash Asian markets. I would like to see the supply chain going in closer to where the cell factories are if we are serious about building out localized supply chains. So I'd like to see announcements for cathode factories in in Europe and North America rather than all in Asia where potentially you've still got a, a large amount of sort of shipping distances for for raw materials from the place it's mined to the to the cathode factory and then on to the cell factory so I, I like to, to to see more more focus on on decentralized supply chains rather than centralized ones well I think ecopro announced that they're interested in uh, setting up a factory in Europe probably pretty close to LG Chem um, in, in Poland. Yeah. Because, you know, LG Chem announced a third factory in Poland and SK announced a third factory in Hungary and uh, Samsung AI are expanding their factories in Hungary. So, yeah. you know, a lot of the Korean capacity is going to be in Europe. So, as you said, might be better off setting up there rather than shipping uh, the cathode materials uh, from Korea. I think that's that's got to be the end game that we have the the entire supply chain, in, including raw materials, in the in the region where you know we're producing the cells. Uh, obviously, it's going to take a while, and and uh, you know let's let's not be uh, let's not be down on the fact that we have seen some pretty significant supply additions announced, and it's it's great to see that the um, the midstream players are are matching supply with demand. But we've still got to see the raw materials come in. As well, yeah, yeah, I agree with you there. It's all going to the growth. The, the whole market hedges on the availability of quality raw materials. And um, even though you said, as you mentioned earlier, the, the capital investments growing every year, we've already surpassed twenty twenty in the first two months of twenty twenty one. That uh, a lot of work has to be done to uh, to build up this uh, raw material supply chain. Okay, I think we'll uh, call it a day there. I'll say uh, thank you very much to Cormac for joining us and uh, look forward to talking to you next month. Talk to you next month, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Cheers. So moving on to this month's interview now. I'm delighted today to be joined by Mark Saxon, who is CEO and president of TSX Venture Listed Medallion Resources. 
Mark is a rare earth element specialist and his company is working on commercializing a revolutionary technology that's going to extract rare earths from existing mineral sands operations without actually having to build new mines. Mark, welcome to uh, Recharge today. Thank you very much, Matt, and I uh, hope you're keeping well and I appreciate the kind words and the welcome. And um, yeah, I guess I've had 10 years working in, in rare earth elements, but still a long way from being a real expert, that's for sure. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't think any of us are experts, but we'll uh, pretend we are. So I guess I should really start here by explaining that while there is some use of rare earths in batteries, uh, they're more an energy transition material with their key usage being as magnets in motors for electric vehicles and wind turbines. Nevertheless, we do cover the rare earth industry in battery materials review, primarily because it's not a well understood or or well covered industry. Mark, just to start us off, perhaps we could talk a little bit about the industry first and then go on to your specific offering. We obviously hear a lot about demand growth in rare earths. Can you put a little bit of flesh on that and and quantify the magnitude of the demand growth that we expect over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, most certainly, Matt. And I I guess, um, yeah, to keep uh, true to your your battery materials brand, then uh, yeah, certainly there are there are, are some overlaps between rare earths and batteries, and, and particularly um, lanthanum is used in, uh, in nickel metal hydride batteries. So it's kind of saying uh, reasonably true to your brand and, and hopefully to the interest of, interest of your audience as well. So um, I guess to talk a little bit more about uh, your follow-up question there and, and the demand growth, the first comment really is to define what we're talking about when we speak of rare earth elements. So rare earth elements, 17 different metals, all with different properties all with different applications, and importantly, all with different prices. And those prices, I guess, range from about $1.50 per kilogram up to, say, $1,500 per kilogram. So when you ask the question, I suppose, of demand growth, all metals are not made equally, and uh, all the rare earths are not made equally, and uh, they're playing different roles in different markets. So they have uh, quite different growth trajectories. You're quite um, right. So I, I should have been more specific and talked about sort of NDPR and, and magnet magnet rare earth materials. Yes, most certainly. And, and I guess if we look back, cast our minds 10 years ago, I guess at that stage, the talk in rare earths was all about heavies versus lights. And, uh, and those are the two chemical subsets, I suppose, of rare earth elements, to put it simply. That talk is much less relevant, I guess, today. And the demand growth, as you say, is, is all coming from the rare earths that are used in permanent magnets. So that's neodymium, praseodymium, and to a lesser degree, uh, dysprosium and terbium. And so the key message really is that for neodymium and praseodymium in in particular, they're with substantial values, they're about $80 per kilogram, but they're also substantial volume markets. So there's real businesses in those two metals. For the smaller market metals, say holmium and latutium and erbium, very essential, but, but very small markets. So um, we're not seeing the same kind of demand growth in, in those smaller markets. So I guess when we talk about the magnet metals, then um, yeah, we need to think about where the demand is going to come from for the magnets, which really is for EV or hybrid vehicles and wind energy. So if you feel optimistic about those areas as an investment case or as a, a development case, then you have to also feel positive about uh, rare earth magnet metals because the demand is getting pulled through into the supply side, into our side of the business. And really, yeah, the the forecasts are extremely strong for all of those metals. Yeah, I guess it's easy to say 10 12% per year growth, and we can see that out for the next decade at least. And so, uh, yeah, some very substantial numbers. And just to sort of try and quantify that, I guess, to some extent, 
I think the excitement about the battery raw materials is because we see the, the market being multiples of the current market size today in, in five to 10 years. Is that what we're effectively talking about in NDPR and, and dysprosium? That, that, that the market yeah, ab- absolutely. And I guess there's been uh, yeah, almost weekly, I suppose, you can say another automotive company or, or a government makes a big promise about a big wind farm or a new commitment to a new EV or, um, yeah, or phasing out uh, entirely of the line of, of IC vehicles. For those of us, I guess, sitting on my side of the table, which is the supply side, then the reaction is always where the hell are all those metals going to come from because the history of investment in critical metals in rare earths just has not been adequate in order to be able to supply that demand. And so um, I think uh, mining people and, and myself included, very, very positive about EVs and wind and, and uh, the energy transition. But it really is a slow process to transition from the use of of oil and coal into the use of the new materials because uh, the mining industry really needs to catch up and and rare earths is just a small part of that. Okay. And and I guess one of the the reasons, I'll talk a little bit about the reasons for that uh, lack of investment in the next couple of questions. But the first one, I guess, is that when we've had these demand spikes before, the events have kind of petered out. So what do you think is different about the demand spike that we're seeing this time around? You've called it there a, a demand spike, but really, um, yeah, if we, if we specifically look back at the, the spike I guess you're talking about, which was 2010 or 2011, there was loads of excitement and, and, um, and with that came a lot of poorly considered investment, but it really wasn't a, a demand spike. It was a, a price spike. And uh, at the time, I was running a company that was called Tasman Metals, which is now Leading Edge Materials. We made a great grassroots discovery in Sweden. And, and um, so we really lived that process. And we saw prices, I guess, go from $200, say, for dysprosium to $2,000. And, and for lanthanum or cerium, it went for $2 to $100. It, it was utterly unsustainable because it wasn't really demand growth. It was just driven by, by politics. And so, in fact, rather than customers looking for more materials and, and trying to, to buy materials and, and um, come up the supply chain, really what they did was uh, was invested to try to get out of rare earths and not get into them. And so it was a very clear lesson from that last spike of, of being careful what you wish for and, and um, yeah, unintended consequences, I suppose, of high prices. If we look this time around, then um, we've seen a more gradual build up in the prices, coming up to a price now where, yeah, I think both suppliers and, and customers would be happy. And um, it kind of relates more to a real supply and demand economy, which I think is a far healthier place to be. So that is being driven now by, by the needs of the energy transition. And uh, in, in fact, we've seen China just recently increase their output through the quota system, and still the prices have risen through that uh, increased output, which is a great sign for the market. So politics is certainly an issue this time around, and supply security is an issue. But the supply security conversation is about the access to metals for green energy and how that's going to deliver jobs and tax revenues to to countries. It's not really about defence and China versus US or China versus Japan, uh, as happened in that last boom. It's quite a different market. Okay. And I think you've touched there on China's dominance of the rare earth industry and, and Western efforts to break that dominance. Now, in the past, as you talked about, the Chinese have always been able to increase production before when critical materials prices rose. What's to stop that from happening again in this cycle? Today, as it has been for, say, 30 years, the Chinese influence in the rare earth industry is substantial. And so 
their production as a share of, of global production is about 70%. And so as an investor in, in this industry, then investors need to be very mindful of that, that it's not necessarily a level playing field. There is a range of producers inside of China, so there's internal competition, but I guess the centralised planning of the Chinese state means that um, a monopoly is formed by those, um, those group of producers. I guess despite it being a monopoly today, yeah, I guess my belief in having fairly deep knowledge of the market is that China didn't really steal an industry from the West. The Chinese just invested in something quite heavily that nobody else really wanted to invest in. And uh, they developed a very strong lead. And uh, it's really now up to other regions like uh, yeah, the US or Europe to invest similarly and um, yeah, accelerate the process and the learning in, in magnets and, and rare earth processing and, uh, and finding ways to add value. So yeah, I guess we need to acknowledge as well that rare earths is, is fundamentally a pretty small industry on the scale of the mining industry. It's, it's very small. And so Small markets are prone to volatility and uh, and perhaps to manipulation, and so there could be shifts, and, and so we need to be prepared for that. But that as well is uh, is is absolutely a double edged sword because it's that risk of increasing supply or decreasing supply or increasing price or decreasing price that really is motivating investment in ex China production. That it has to happen, and uh, there needs to be a really strong number two and a number three supplier sitting behind China to be a really healthy market and. And if we can create that, it'll mean that customers are not nervous about using rare earths and, and they'll be investing in using more rare earths rather than trying to um, get out of it and use less. Do you subscribe to this view that, that many commentators have suggested that, that China's rare earth reserves, so its reserves, not its resources, are starting to, de- to deplete? Do you see any evidence of that from, from the work you've done? I certainly don't see that from, um, yeah, I guess, on, on the larger scale. but. Most of the Chinese rare earths are coming from a single mine called uh, Bayanobo um, in Inner Mongolia, um, where the rare earths are produced as a byproduct to iron ore. So most of their money is coming from iron ore production. And at the moment, with very high iron ore prices, I'm sure that mine would be prioritizing iron ore production over rare earth production because they would be making uh, tremendous money from that. I think that imbalance may be having a, an impact in the market. Certainly, and, and we know it from what we'll talk about next, which is the uh, the medallion technology and monazite, we certainly know that China is a, a very substantial importer of mineral sand monazite. Whether that's being consumed already or that's being stockpiled, we don't know, but certainly that's going into the country, which would say that, um, yeah, there is some concern over the, the medium term about um, access to rare earth materials. And given the sort of focus on sustainability that's growing more and more important throughout the auto industry and uh, in industries that consume rare earths. Has there been an impact on China's supply due to changes in what's permissible from the processing point of view? I can't say we've seen that yet, but it's certainly on the horizon. And um, yeah, certainly, I guess when we, uh, and, and you know, my previous experience with, uh, with graphite materials and um, yeah, from uh, leading edge materials, certainly the conversations in that company, we were just starting to see the questions being asked about can you provide us with a, a, your sustainability policy? Can you provide us with your life cycle analysis of your materials? The battery materials, that's the very easy place to do that, and particularly within Europe, I guess. But that's going to expand progressively across um, a broader range of materials. And I guess all customers across the world progressively as well. And so certainly for what we've done in Medallion, we're, we're committing to doing a life cycle analysis. And uh, I think that will become normal and that may create a barrier, I guess, for, um, for Chinese materials to make them a little bit less competitive 
if they're not prepared to disclose the history of the materials or the life cycle footprint of those materials, then it's going to be very hard to find customers in the US or Europe for those materials. There'll be a strong barrier to entry, um, I think, if they don't disclose the history. Okay. So moving on to Medallion's offering now, and obviously the attractive part of that is that your technology doesn't require the construction of new mines or potentially doesn't require the construction of new mines. Can you just outline that product? Yeah, for sure. You're quite right, Matt. And and, um, yeah, Medallion is a company, I guess, with a business model that is designed to deal with the the pricing risk that comes from the Chinese monopoly and the volatility that you, I guess, touched on earlier. And uh, and so the business model is designed about being scalable and, and having very modest upfront capital. And that's kind of um, a, a bit of a protection against that sort of uncertainty in the market. I guess most fundamentally, Medallion was built and, and is being built with the expectation of, of rare earth customers. And uh, yeah, as we just touched on there, it's about minimum impact materials. It's about traceable materials. It's about low CO2 materials. And, and of course, being very cost competitive with Chinese competitors. So Medallion fills a quite a unique place in the rare earth sector. And um, and so over the last five years, the company has focused entirely on the development of a technology for the safe and I guess sustainable production of rare earths from mineral sand monazite. So monazite is a fairly common phosphate mineral. It's in many rocks, it's in granites. Um, it's a mineral with a very high density. So when when the bedrock breaks down, it goes into rivers and creeks and streams and it ends up in heavy mineral deposits with other heavy minerals like zircon and rutile and and, uh, garnet. And so in heavy mineral deposits that are being mined around the world today, in Western Australia, in in parts of Africa, in Mozambique and Sierra Leone, there'll be a little bit of monazite within that and uh, it's currently not being used. And that's, um, or it's not being used or it's being sold to a Chinese customer. And uh, so Medellin's focus is to access that material and use that for rare earths. And how big would you say is the existing resource base for, for rare earths and mineral sands? I mean, is there stuff sitting around in sort of tailings heaps or tailings dams and stuff? Yeah, I guess the, yeah, the, the, the answer to that is, first of all, it's not very transparent. And second of all, huge. We have worked extremely hard to, I guess, understand that market. And, and um, in combination with some, um, some partners as well, we've been speaking to many suppliers. So, uh, yeah, today everything's going in, into, Af- into China. We've certainly um, determined that. And, um, yeah, I guess I can't put a number on it, but if um, from the, the people we've spoken to, I guess we can say that um, the, the magnet metal needs for, for the Western world can be supplied from mineral sand monazite only for a decade or two. So, um, yeah, the numbers are very large from mineral sand monazite. And, and when you look at mineral sand mines, they measure their resources in, in billions of tonnes, not millions of tonnes. So we're talking about very, very long-lived um, businesses. And, and so we can be a very small part, I guess, of um, on the, the side of those businesses. So mineral sand monazite, yeah, I guess that it's a, a fairly unique offering, as, as you sort of questioned earlier. And um, when we look at, uh, at, at ticking the boxes on the business we're developing, then first of all, for the mineral sand monazite, there are many suppliers. There's no chance of a supply monopoly. There's no chance of an undue influence from one country or a region. Or a region. We're always going to have availability. Second, I think um, it's a relatively low-value byproduct. So when mineral sand mines that are operating today, when they were built, they would have put zero value on the monazite. So they're not really seeking very high value from that. They're chasing value from their other materials, and that was why the mines were built. I guess third, it's a, it's a very high-grade mineral with a high percentage of the most attractive metals, which is the ND and the Neodymium, praseodymium. 
and that means it can uh, the the high value means it can sustain transport for quite long distances, and so we're able to sort of aggregate those mineral sand mines into one location. And uh, I guess really the the thing that we really appreciate most is that the wind and the wave action that created the heavy mineral sand deposit has also sorted and um, and separated the monazite so that it's very homogeneous. And so wherever we go in the world, we can take a monazite sample and it's going to go through the medallion process and, um, yeah, we know it's going to work. Um, we don't have any of the risk that you normally get from sort of complex rare earth deposits in, in hard rock settings. Just as, a, as an extension of that, what's the sort of grade of total rare earth oxide in a, in a monazite? Is it sort of... Yeah, I guess it depends on which point in the supply chain you look. So, um, yeah, it's it's a low grade in the ground in the uh, the heavy mineral sand. The heavy mineral sand goes through a, a gravity concentrate process, and so all the heavy minerals are concentrated into one fraction. The monazite is then split out of that fraction, and then it's upgraded to about ninety percent monazite, which is the material that will be taken by Medellin Resources. So, if there's ninety percent monazite in the sample then the monazite mineral itself will be having about 60% total rare earth oxide within the monazite itself. So we're talking about plus 50% total rare earths in the sample that we receive. Right. And, uh, and that's a very high grade, very high value material. And it means that um, yeah, it can support long distance transport and, um, and we have very little waste that comes from that. One of the issues with extracting rare earths from monazite has always been the high levels of radioactivity. How does your process manage to remove those elements? Yeah, for sure. And that's a, a, a very key and critical question. And um, yeah, radiation management is absolutely an essential question for rare earths in general and for mineral sand monazite specifically. And uh, as a company, if we can't deal with radioactivity in a way that is, yeah, first of all, scientifically robust, and second of all, acceptable to permitting authorities and the communities, then we're not going to have a business. So it's a, it's a major issue for us to solve and, and we're working very hard on that. So I guess, first of all, monazite is a class seven substance, which means it requires certain uh, labelling and packaging when it's transported. This is not a complex process. It happens every day. We're using consultant advisor to, um, to take care of that process. There's a very healthy trade in monazite already. And so we don't need to reinvent the wheel on that part. When we receive the monazite to our facility, then we dissolve or digest that and everything goes into solution. All the elements that were in the monazite end up in solution. So then we have a a very well-controlled sort of temperature, pressure, chemical setting, which we use to precipitate all of the radioactive elements away from the rare earths and the phosphate. So they kind of head off in different streams. So our, our radioactive product is then a mixture of thorium and uranium the thorium and uranium, the ratio depends on where the monazite came from and, and the history of it. That product, in some localities, it'll be saleable because it will have a high content of uranium and uh, will go straight into, um, uh, into a uranium circuit. Other places, it would have to go into long-term storage if the, if the thorium is, is much more abundant. But um, certainly in some locations, and, and um, yeah, can't name names, but there's places that are feeling very optimistic about access to thorium and um, are seeking thorium in a way that they can use for future energy production. And, um, and so we're obviously sort of doing a fair bit of research in that. So our process, it's designed to be highly automated and, and um, also designed to have zero liquid discharge, and, uh, which is quite a big deal. And it's a very innovative process that achieves that. And so wherever we operate, there's nothing that goes out to the environment. Anything that, that leaves, leaves in uh, either a product form or a very tiny amount of waste 
that um, goes into long-term storage and uh, all of it in a solid phase. Okay. And um, I mean, this sounds really exciting. So how do you intend to commercialize that technology? You want to operate your own plants or do you intend to license the technology out to existing miners or processors? Yeah, I guess that's still uh, yeah, very much a conversation we have on a, a daily basis. And, and we see both of those options, I guess, as, as quite rational, depending on the circumstances and the jurisdictions. I guess when Medallion began, and, and I, uh, as I think I mentioned, I've only been with the company about 12 months, but when, when Medallion began, the idea was, was certainty, certainly to be an, an aggregator of monazite, to, um, yeah, to bring in monazite from various locations and uh, to process in that one location. But um, I guess looking at what, the way the industry looks at the moment, and um, yeah, we're feeling obviously quite optimistic about the market growth, then um, taking a larger view and a longer view than we've been speaking to some of the larger potential suppliers of monazite where a different business approach may be more appropriate and, uh, and obviously putting our facility yeah, closer to those larger suppliers um, yeah, makes a lot of sense as well. So I guess um, one key decision point in that is not just about economics and uh, certainly looking forward, I think in rare earths, it's, it's definitely not just economic decisions. We're completing a life cycle assessment for our process and it's a very clear expectation from customers for battery materials and for rare earths that our CO2 footprint is, is measured and closed and certainly minimised. And so the idea of, of taking a large volume of mineral sands from Western Australia and, and carrying it to, um, to USA or carrying it from Africa to, to somewhere else doesn't make a lot of sense, I guess, on a CO2 basis. So our, our aim is, uh, is to, to build in the most sensible places where we can minimise um, the CO2 footprint. We can utilise our renewable energy we can get access to the chemicals we need, access to port facilities. So I guess there's quite a few, um, yeah, a few parts to that uh, that question, and and um, it'll be revealed over the next uh, six months anyway. I think. So watch this space, basically. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. A long answer to say that. Yes. Okay. So where are you in terms of your your development profile? Have have you uh, had a pilot plant? How long do you think it's going to take to commercialise this technology? The headline is that we um, are about to complete a techno-economic study, and um, and that's due within um, Q1, start of Q2, and uh, 2021, depending on when you go to um, uh, go live with this one. So uh, yeah, we've done an awful lot of work in, in development of the technology and uh, our understanding of the process. And the, the techno-economic assessment is, is, I guess, like a, a PFS pulling together all of the, I guess, um, proprietary commercial knowledge that we have around the process to do the engineering around it and also to do the financial model around it. That's very close to complete. So I guess if we look at just the chemistry by itself, we have a a very, very good understanding of the chemistry. So uh, there's really not much more we need to do in that regard. On the other side is the engineering and how we actually implement it and how we do recycling of reagents and capture of, of heat and, and uh, keep the system working and automation. I guess that's the place we're focusing now is the, um, is the design and engineering side. And so, again, we're very well advanced in that and, and the results from the te- economic study will, um, yeah, will feed into that immediately. Okay. And you've recently made an investment into rare earth separation. That's quite a bit downstream from your previous focus. Can you give me a, a feeling as to why you've taken that approach and, and how you came to choose that investment? Yeah, for sure, Matt. And, and uh, I guess it's a, quite an interesting and fast-moving part of our story. And as you said, it's really quite new. So 
I guess to clarify, in the past, we've invested in the extraction part of the rare earth supply chain, which is breaking down the minerals and, and taking out the rare earths and, and forming a mixed rare earth product. Each of those rare earths that's in the mixed product has a unique characteristic. And so to capture each of those, those uh, characteristics and to get the enough value from them, then they need to be separated into individual elements and purified. So this is the separation step. So rare earth is very much a supply chain business. And, um, and so we've been working hard to, I guess, find our place within that business. And so we started to look, first of all, upstream at the monazite suppliers. And we've been working hard on that and, and finding some very good partners in that area. And, and um, yeah, we're very pleased with how that's gone. So we then started to look downstream from our extraction part of the business to see who would do the separation for us. And I guess the, the, the easy answer there was that we quickly realised that we just didn't know enough. We were seeking someone to partner with that had a like-minded, low CO2 impact technology, and we just couldn't see that in the market. So there are a range of operating players in separation and a range of emerging technologies, and we didn't see a clear leader. So um, what we did, we sort of stepped back a little and um, we appointed independent reviewers. That independent review identified about 25 different groups and uh, we questioned them all and all that wanted to speak to us and, and we went through their pros and cons. Through that process, we identified chromatography as a technique that we were really impressed and pleased with. In particular, the economics are good, but also it doesn't require solvents. It's all done in, a, in an aqueous setting. And so it's not linked in any way to the petrochemical industry and, and we like that factor. And then I guess as we dug into chromatography a bit deeper, we came to, um, to discover a, a lady named, a researcher at Purdue University named Linda Wang. And so Linda's done about 10 years of research in rare separation with a particular focus on separating and purifying magnet metals from uh, various streams of, of waste and, and um, minerals. And uh, in fact, her, her work had just been published in the Journal of Green Chemistry. And I think that really says the work that she's been doing in terms of minimising the footprint of separation and, and really focusing not just on the economics, but on the, um, the environmental footprint as well. So, so Linda and her associate, Dan Hasler, aligned with our thinking very much. And, um, and so we pursued that and, and we're now an investor in that technology. And um, that licence, we can apply to our own um, monazite but we can also apply it to uh, to peer companies as well. So we're yeah we're in the process of talking to other peers who we we think are doing good work and have good projects uh, to see if they'd like to to uh, engage in research about separation using the uh, the Purdue technology. Okay, okay. I mean that sounds uh, really interesting. So move downstream. So just coming back to the the upstream, what are the advantages of your technology over traditional rare earth mining? That's a, an easy question, I guess, and I'll, I'll try to capture that one simply in, in just a few words. And really, it's, um, it, it's a scalable technology, so it can grow as the market grows. It's transferable. We can put it into the best location to operate to be the lowest carbon footprint and the most economic. It's highly resource efficient because we're using a byproduct mineral that's already being mined. And it's a very low capital cost because, um, yeah, we don't need to open a, a whole mining facility. So we're able to really right-size our output for market conditions and then grow as the market grows. And, and so that, I believe, keeps it safe and, and um, yeah, makes a very strong long-term business. That can withstand, yeah, like as you questioned before about um, what happens with Chinese supply, where I think we're in a great position to be able to survive that because really what we've done is, is copying Chinese thinking in, in the approach we're taking. Okay. And, and I look at the 
market value of your company compared to to some of the the rare earth companies out there, particularly those that have gone the the SPAC approach or or whatever? And I kind of feel that there's a quite a significant difference. So, w- what is it that you think that investors don't really get about this company? We've always asked ourselves that question internally, and uh, as pre-production companies, yeah, what is what's real value and what's fair value? It's very hard to say. But I guess one issue that Medallion has always struggled with is the fact that we are a Canadian resources issuer, which means we're subject to the uh, NI43 101 disclosure standards. So those disclosure standards, the NI43 101 was written with um, resource projects in mind where you've got a um, yeah, tons and grade and recoveries and, and production costs. Because we don't have a resource, we're not permitted, we, we're not able, it's, we're not permitted to do a traditional PEA or a PFS or an, or an FS like all of our other peer companies are doing. So it's a struggle, therefore, to express, I guess, what we're doing because we can't put our information in the same format. And um, yeah, we're not a- able to publish our own internal studies because uh, yeah, it doesn't fall under 43101. But I guess we're now working through that limitation. And um, yeah, our share price, I guess, is, is modest in terms of market cap versus some of our peers, but we've had a, a pretty good 12 months. And uh, I think that the good trend in the last 12 months reflects I guess, a broader strengthening market. Uh, the company itself has hit plenty of milestones. And uh, I think we're starting to, to tell our story a little bit more clearly and uh, starting to get uh, closer to the finish line as well. So, um, yeah, we're able to talk about sort of more um, short-term milestones and goals. Okay, that sounds brilliant. Mark Saxon, thank you very much indeed for your time today. Thanks a lot, Matt. I appreciate the time. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for March. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.